This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hello, and welcome to a special presentation of Content Is Your Business. Thank you for joining us. Recently, we had the privilege of being in the room with a remarkable and distinguished panel of content leaders as part of the She Runs It Media Insights Breakfast event at the New York Times building during Adweek. Panelists from companies such as the New York Times, Prudential, Glossier, IBM Watson, Belvedere Vodka, and HBO shared insights and important information on how marketers use targeting, technology, and immersive experiences to drive better business results and captivate consumers on a visceral level. We were given access to the full discussion, which we are able to share with you here on Content Is Your Business. Tune in next week for a another of our regular episodes. For now, enjoy this incredible panel and discussion. From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business, conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Produced by Mouth Media Network, powered by Sennheiser, and brought to you by 24-7 Talent, the leading creative recruitment firm. Karen List. I'm with the New York Times and I want to welcome you. It's really good to see you all early and on day four of Advertising Week. We've made it to this point. I know it's a long week. Welcome to She Runs It Brand Love Panel. They say that you haven't figured out how to tell your brand story well. If you haven't figured it out, then you might be missing out on the huge revenue boost potential. The right brand story has the power to ultimately increase the value of your business product or service by 20 times. And it can lead, it can boost your lead generation by as much as 16 times. So it's got to be important. So when storytelling is done well, it clearly establishes what your brand is all about, its purpose, core values, you get the mission out, and it offers consumers more than just a product or service, but that what we call brand love or emotional connection. It motivates the user or the reader to step into really that experience. And today we're going to hear from five of the best. For me, how many of you have been to SoulCycle? Okay, so for me, it's SoulCycle and find your soul. Bear with me on this. So SoulCycle has come up with a powerful story to compel people to pay close to the price equivalent of a monthly membership at a typical gym for one 45-minute class. SoulCycle creates loyalists, zealots, I kind of call them, Brand, and the brand offers a high-end experience, of course, with a focus on the atmosphere. Okay, there's good music, hot instructors, inspirational fitness coaches, you may say, and then there are those candles. But it's really the narrative that entices us to go. So it's really that brand and brand story. So today, we're thrilled to have the industry's most successful brands with us. And they're going to tell us their stories and how they do it, and how they leverage the power of emotions. So on behalf of the New York Times and She Runs It, we're thrilled to have you here today. Let me please introduce the CEO and uh, president of Advertising, uh, sorry, She Runs It. <laughs> here she is, the, in, the uh, best of the best, Lynn Brannigan. I almost did it again. She keeps calling us Ani. She can't stop. Can I yes, okay, sorry but, about that. But, um, so hi, everybody. How's everyone doing this morning? 
We're doing good? Great. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, this is our second uh, Advertising Week event in this very room. So let me just a show of hands. Who was here on Tuesday? Okay, great. Well, welcome back. Um, so um, thrilled to have all of you here today. Um, for those of you who might not know, uh, this is uh, our, our first birthday with our new brand name. On September 26th of last year, we announced that Advertising Women of New York was now She Runs It. And some of those long-term members, like Karen, can't get away from calling us Ani. But now Ani stands for Advertising Week New York, this event. They took our name, and uh, we wish them well with it. Um, <laughs> so uh, the reason we changed our name was a couple of reasons. Our industry has changed. We've become much bigger than advertising to include a broad marketing and media ecosystem. We're also bigger than New York in that we expanded to Chicago last year, and we're now 700 uh, members strong in Chicago. So that's been a, a great accomplishment, something we're very proud of. And we also wanted to help people understand why we do what we do. And that reason is simple. We are here to pave the way for more women to lead at every level of marketing and media. And events like this help our industry stay current and we do this plus about 49 other events a year that span thought leadership, mentoring, networking, um, and the celebration of executive achievements through awards events. And we couldn't do that without a lot of support. We have a lot of wonderful sponsors and supporters today. So I first want to thank our sponsors. Um, we have, uh, we have a, a sponsor slide coming up, and I'm waiting for it, whoever's driving the slides. Uh, but I want to thank... Um, Twitter and Centro and Teeds and Vubal and the New York Times for hosting us. Um, I also want to thank all the Corporate Alliance partners who are um, who support us every day. If you don't know what that is, uh, ask uh, Stephanie from Twitter because she just told me why Twitter just became our most recent uh, Corporate Alliance partner. But it's a program that allows you to offer. Uh, um, she runs it as a company benefit to all of your employees, so it's something very special. I also want to uh, share a lot of uh, a shout out to our board of directors. I have some of the board members here. Ladies, would you stand up? Rachel, you stand too because you were a board member. Uh, and Jill Kelly, you stand too. We have these are four of our 22 board members. Karen was once the president of our board. Our board is a working board. Their job is to guide the strategic initiatives for our organization. So I really appreciate all their support all year long. I also want to give a shout out to our foundation board. This is our fundraising board. They're also public speakers. I'm going to give Twitter another shout out. Matt Durell has just become the most recent uh, foundation board member. So um, very, very proud of that. So we usually start this with uh, some opening remarks from our sponsors who talk about why they chose an event like this or tell a little bit about their company too. So with that, I'm going to introduce Nicole Matthews, who's the head of communication and events for Teeds. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Um, thank you so much for joining us at the She Runs It Media Insights Breakfast. Uh, as Lynn mentioned, my name is Nicole Matthews, and I head up marketing and communications at Teeds. Teeds is an advertising technology company, and we created a category within the industry called Outstream. For those of you that may not be familiar, if you've ever read a news article on your phone or computer and a video ad appears within the text, that is our technology that you're encountering. Teeds is very proud to work with a number of Fortune 500 brands, 
And we also feel passionately about championing the needs of our premium publishers like Time Inc., Condé Nast, and ESPN, all of whom are trying to find ways to uh, build new revenue streams in a world that, unfortunately, it seems, is losing sight of the value of professionally produced, editorially sound content. Hashtag no more fake news, please. Um, I'm very excited about the lineup of speakers that we have this morning, but before they come up, I do want to talk a little bit about TEADS and why we are honored and humbled to champion the work of She Runs It. We first engaged with She Runs It a couple of years ago, and since then, we have become more conscious and sensitive as an organization to the needs of our female employees. We were very thrilled to host two events with She Runs It on our yacht at the recent Cannes Lions Festival, um, one of which was focused squarely on the gender parity issue, and the other one featured inspirational stories from a number of uh, female leaders in our industry on how we can strengthen the future for women. Since then, we've taken a hard look at our organization and asked ourselves, what can we be doing better? Teeds is a company made up of 550 very talented employees in 21 countries across the world. And while over 40% of our workforce is female, we can't help but ignore the fact, we can't ignore the fact that only two women sit on our leadership team. With the help of our CMO and president, we are actively looking for ways that we can change this and also ensure better equality and opportunity for the women at Teeds. We're currently assessing a number of initiatives that we plan to kick off in the coming months. Firstly, we're looking at all of our speaking engagements to see how we can bring more female speakers into them and ensure that it's not just male voices that are speaking on behalf of the company. Thank you. <laughs> we're also evaluating um, all of our uh, career advancement opportunities to make sure that there are proper opportunities in place for women in the company and looking at all of our family planning and care programs to make sure that they're flexible and in tune with the needs and wants of TEED's women so that they can better balance their lives. And then lastly, to address female representation, we're committing to have at least 50% of interviewed candidates for high-ranking positions be female in the hopes that at least 30% of our leadership team will be female by 2020. I'm very excited and hopeful about these initiatives, and we credit She Runs It with helping TEADS and others in the space as well acknowledge the needs and the challenges that women are facing. We also would like to thank She Runs It with giving us some ideas of tangible things that we can do in the short term and the long term to help strengthen the future of women. With that, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Sheryl Sandberg that is very much emblematic of what I hope for as we all work towards this common goal. She says, in the future, there will not be female leaders, there will just be leaders. Thank you very much for your time, and I'd like to bring Twitter up now. Thank you, Nicole. Would anybody like a water? Um, Nicole captured a lot of the core values that are really important to Twitter as well, so thank you for doing that, coming up with um, statistics on what TEADS is trying to do to achieve gender parity for their organization and help us spread that throughout the rest of the you know, ad tech 
and uh, advertising marketing community. So um, hello, my name is Mike Dupree. I am the industry manager for media and entertainment at Twitter. I am pinch hitting today for our fearless leader, Matt Dorella, and uh, she runs it newly uh, minted, she runs it foundation board members. So uh, thank you all for being here today. Quick question for those in the room. I know that there were some folks here last week. Who is at their very first She Runs It event? Raise your hand. Awesome. So many, um, and also many return members. It's awesome to see uh, the organization continue to grow. Uh, it's been something that's been very important to me personally for many years since the uh, Ani days, which is also kind of tough to uh, tough to retrain my mind on She Runs It. But uh, it's also something that's been very important to Twitter. Twitter's been a sponsor of several events for uh, for She Runs It over the course of the year. Uh, the last few years, we are also uh, newly a silver uh, corporate alliance member, which, as Lynn mentioned, means every Twitter employee uh, is has the opportunity to be a member of She Runs It. Hopefully, you all see the totes on uh, your seats today. Take those with you. Um, so, you know, Twitter as a corporate goal also has the, uh, you know, the very important task of achieving gender parity throughout every level of the organization. I think that's the most important part of uh, what Nicole said and what Twitter echoes. Um, and that also starts with, you know, making sure our pipelines reflect that as well. Um, we really um, appreciate She Runs It bringing us in as a corporate sponsor and uh, are really excited about the incredible panel of people. You have a tremendous group today to talk about some amazing topics. So thanks to the entire panel for being here. I know that they're sacrificing their time to be with us today. And uh, thank you to She Runs It for having us and keeping us in the family. Hard to get behind that thing. Thank you very much for pinch hitting, Mike. That was very nice of you. Uh, I just learned something from uh, from Stephanie from uh, Twitter just this morning, which was they chose they as an organization they had a committee try to figure out what organization, what one organization do they want to get behind to support diversity in women, and they chose us. So I'm I'm thrilled to learn that. So thank you so much for that uh, vote of confidence and level of support. So without further ado, I'd like to invite our speakers up and our moderator. Our moderator this year is Sapna Maheshwari. Um, Sapna is, did I get that wrong? Um, Sapna is, uh, runs uh, the advertising beat for the New York Times. We, we brought her in last year uh, when she was here for exactly a week. So uh, now she's got a whole year of experience under her uh, belt. So Sapna, come on up. And speakers, please join us up front as well. working? Yep. I think so. All right. Um, well, thanks so much for having me in that great introduction. It's true. I was very early into covering advertising for the times where it is a hometown industry. And so I was pretty petrified last year. But looking at a lot of women while I spoke actually really calmed my nerves. And so it definitely helps. Um, so I'm very excited about this panel. Um, I think with everything going on in advertising, especially some of the stories I have to write um, on a weekly basis, this is kind of, I mean, really one of the more fun parts of marketing, probably why many of you went into it, this idea of brand love. Um, and we have some great panelists here. And um, I would love if you guys could introduce yourselves and maybe say a brand that you loved when you were a teenager. 
Good morning, everyone. I'm Jasmine Allen. Um, I lead consumer marketing and engagement for the Belvedere Vodka brand at LVMH. Um, a brand that I loved when I was a little, a little girl, especially was Sprite. <laughs> Why Sprite? Well, I always loved their advertising. Um, and Sprite was delicious with my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> Uh, good morning, I'm Sabrina Calori, and I had uh, digital media and marketing at HBO. Um, and a brand I loved as a teenager was Delius. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people my age in the room. <laughs> um, well, good morning. My name is Maria Winans, and I am with IBM, and I run, I'm chief marketing officer for our Watson and our Watson customer engagement. A brand that I loved at 15, I'm going to stretch it a little bit. Um, I'm really big into fitness, and I'm a trainer. Um, and since I was very young, I always aspired to be a trainer. So Reebok at that time. And Avia, actually, at that time. Reebok and Avia. Morning, everyone. I'm Colin McConnell, Chief Brand Officer with Prudential. Um, my teenage daughter loved Delia's, so I'm feeling a little, It's still feeling around? Little, I'm feeling a little old. No, that's how old she is, and how old I am. Um, and I would say, um, gosh, there were a lot of, I, I, was, I was always kind of a brand junkie, but I, I guess maybe Fender guitars, uh, being a guitar player. I'm Allie Weiss. I am SVP of marketing at Glossier, which some people may not know. It's a small startup beauty brand. We're about three years old now, and we sell direct to consumer. When I was a teenager, one of my favorite brands, I have a tie. I think one was Nike, because I think Nike Town was a new concept, and so I loved the experience there. And then I'm from Boston. I loved the Dunkin' Donuts brand and all of their advertising and their donuts. <laughs> As a fellow New Englander. I feel similarly. Um, well, so I don't want you to feel like you have to answer going right down the row on every question. We'd love this to be more of a discussion. Um, but maybe a good way to start would be to share an example of um, how you've used brand love or seen customers connect with your brands um, in a really emotional way um, somewhat recently or something that really stands out in your mind. jump in. Um, so one mini campaign that we've done recently, everybody go there, um, is a, something I'm really proud of called Masterpiece of Love. So financial services is, is an interesting category because it's, it, of course at its core it's highly emotional. I mean it's, it's really, really weighty stuff. But for the same reason it's, you know, it's traditionally viewed as a low engagement category. It's, sometimes it's stuff you don't want to think about and all that. Um, and as a life insurance company, you know, it's hard to talk about life insurance. You can't talk about that without talking about death, and, and death is hard to talk about. Um, and we did some work recently that I think is fabulous, and actually I think we're just scratching the surface on, on how to leverage it, to be honest with you. But um, Masterpiece of Love was a really fascinating idea. The insight behind it is, is just that you know, we're, we're, we're really bad at grieving, and probably everybody in this room has been through a grieving process of some sort. Um, so it's, it's universal. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm evoking those feelings right now. Um, but, um, you know, we felt like as a brand, as a life insurance company, there's something we could stand up beyond just the life insurance benefit is how do we help people grieve and sort of thinking about the whole person. And so we did pretty amazing storytelling where we found people who'd lost someone 
um, and we pair them up with a local artist where we're, our company is founded in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, we've been there for over 140 years and we, we found local artists um, and we had those who'd grieve tell their stories of the people that they lost and then they, the local artist captured it um, in, a, in a work of art, original work of art with lots of different types of artistic styles. Um, shot documentaries around these um, and then of course it, you know so the stories are incredibly moving and evocative the artwork is is really just an amazing way to sort of capture the essence of the people that were lost the the, the unity of these people the artists paired you know and giving this gift of, of unique expression um, to the to the people who are grieving um, and then we did a uh, an exhibit at the Newark uh, Art Museum and and had an event around that did a lot of storytelling around that um, and a, I would say, you know, a kind of a mega hit in terms of social, uh, really tapped a nerve. Um, and once we started that conversation, realized how many people wanted to talk and share and talk about those that they've lost. And, you know, I, I, that's why I think we're just scratching the surface, but super, super powerful stuff. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about, uh, what we've done recently with IBM. IBM is such a powerful brand, technology brand. We've been around for a very long time. And one of the things that we um, were realizing is how do we connect with the practitioners that we serve, the marketers, the advertisers, the supply chain leaders, the doctors. So we came out with this campaign. I don't know how many of you have seen it. You to the power of IBM. Uh, really focus on the practitioners. And what we found is that connection of how Watson is changing the way you work. How Watson is helping doctors solve big world problems like solving cancer. How Watson is helping you, the marketer, better connect with your customers. And it's really resonating well. Um, rather than leading with a technology statement, we're leading with what it is that Watson's helping that practitioner achieve, talking to the challenges that they deal with every day. Any uh, Game of Thrones fans in there? <laughs> this, is a, this is an older one, but uh, I thought a good example for this. We, I think maybe season three, season four, the, the Joffrey season, uh, we, were, we were in a tween season moment. We had a year, um, and we felt like, in between seasons, we felt like we needed to engage the fan base, and we, working with our agency, had come across this insight that Joffrey was the most hated character on television, so it's sort of the flip of brand love. Um, we had come up with a conceit to do a roast, so the first um, digital and social roast. Uh, we, we did a campaign, Roast Offery, which was a huge hit on Twitter. Thank you, Twitter. Um, but really just gave fans the tools to express their brand love for Game of Thrones by showing their hate through all of these creative <laughs> tools for this, um, you know, their very passionate hate for this character who very much deserved it. So he, he is terrible. Yes. Um, I have an example to share. Um, it's a fond one. It was a partnership that we did actually with the New York Times. Uh, Belvedere is a proud partner of the Red Initiative, um, which is all about helping to end the mother-to-child transmission of AIDS uh, in South Africa. And last year, we did a special edition bottle with a brilliant South African artist, Esther Malangu, um, and uh, basically did a full campaign around uh, that partnership. 
And the New York Times came to us with a fantastic idea to try to bring gravitas to this idea of AIDS awareness in a beautifully shot and very compelling way. Um, we partnered with them to create a three-part series. Um, the first was a deep dive into the life of our, um, our, our limited edition bottle artist, Esther. Um, the second was a by-the-numbers look at how far we've come since the first AIDS case was, uh, was announced. Um, and the third, which was the most pivotal and I think um, the most impactful, was an eight-minute video of two artists that live in South Africa who are channeling their art as a way to raise awareness for those that they have lost in the AIDS battle. Um, and the beauty of this was that it allowed us to educate people about AIDS, which is a heavy subject, much to Colin's point, um, but in a way that was very high impact, that was very engaging. Um, doing a three-part series allowed us to, to connect with people three different times in three different ways. Um, the first piece was just a pure editorial piece about Esther with beautiful photographs of her here in New York City. The second was actually an animatic. And then the third was that, that very awesome video um, that was actually shot in South Africa. And I'm really proud of it because it helped us move the needle from a consumer perspective. We uh, were able to surpass all of our benchmarks um, and our brand lift study that we typically conduct after programs of this type um, revealed that this definitely um, moved the needle uh, from a likability perspective with consumers. Um, but it also allowed us to be nominated for a Digiday Award. Um, and I think when you can be applauded both from the consumer perspective but also the industry perspective, you feel pretty darn good about that. So. Last but not least, uh, we're actually in the throes of the campaign that I'm going to talk about right now. Two weeks ago, we launched a product called Body Hero, and we traditionally only had skincare and makeup products. And as a direct-to-consumer brand, we're not constrained by shelf space and the fact that our body products would sit in another part of the store. And we were really excited about this category expansion because it said a lot. It's also a very difficult category. A lot of people, 95% of the category is in mass and we're mastige pricing. And it was also a very interesting approach for us because having only focused on skincare and makeup, all of our campaigns had really been like shoulders up maximum. So we took a long time to be very thoughtful about what this campaign concept would be. And we, for us, did our largest media buy to date and actually our first New York Times ad buy. We had a uh, full page in the Sunday Style section last weekend. And the entire concept was about how everyone is a body hero and making a statement to today's generation about what a body hero is. And we cast five different women uh, who represented very diverse body types, very diverse backgrounds. And the amazing thing is they were all friends of the brand. So they had worked with us before. So there was a backstory and a relationship. And they all had their own story. Um, if you look at the campaign, you can see sort of the range of bodies. We had plus size. We had someone who was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, and so it was a pretty amazing moment for the company. We were really proud of what we were representing. And I think the most amazing thing today is brand love is most frequently expressed through social media. And uh, we were thinking to ourselves, when's the last time that you saw people Instagramming a full page ad in the New York Times? And that was our most engaged brand post and also our most posted piece of media on social media that people responded to. So it was a pretty amazing moment. And I think a statement where a lot of the headlines around Fashion Week had been about how plus size and different body types were not represented in um, the fall fashion 
uh, week and all of the new campaigns. And so sort of putting that in up front and also all of the photographs were completely, completely nude. And so it was a really big statement for us. And it was about how we're not only about taking care of your face, but taking care of your entire body and um, instilling confidence in today's generation. It's so interesting, the Instagramming of the print ad. I feel like that's something we also saw with the Spotify campaign around the city um, with the stats that they had had too. And it's, it's kind of a neat sort of way of uh, technology. I think it makes people also think about impressions because traditionally it was what is this type of media, how many impressions is this type of media going to get? But if you create something in media, those can be multiplied if people are sharing them. Right. As a former uh, employee of BuzzFeed, I'd we're all about that viral lift. Uh, <laughs> but um, that's a great segue, actually. Um, as you uh, looked at that as a measurement of brand love, and you're talking about um, likability as well, what tools and, and how do you measure brand sentiment, brand like and love versus just awareness, um, especially today? What sort of tools help you do that? Um, I would say that there's internal processes that, that we take at LVMH. Um, and then we partner with our media agency, Havas, uh, whenever we do large media partnerships to make sure that we're reaching the KPIs that we've set, engaging how consumers have um, been impacted by what we've, by, by the content that we've created. Um, from an internal perspective, we have annual brand health report trackers that we look at, um, and they really dig deeply into, um, you know, consumer perception of Belvedere, consumer perception of the vodka category as a whole, um, their perception of our competitors versus us. Um, it also gives us an opportunity to understand a bit more about the makeup of our consumer. Um, I think that's super important because as you try to identify your audience, as you buy media, as you try to create content, you have to do an audience first. So the most you, you can compile about those consumers, um, the better. Um, and we, we definitely use that information to inform the way um, we approach our media planning and content creation. And then from uh, a partner perspective, um, usually, so just like after the, the, the example I gave about our red partnership, um, we'll partner with, with Havas to do a brand health lift study. Um, where consumers are actually asked to let us know, did this content move you? Um, do you think that Belvedere is a, a brand that cares about, about causes? Do you think that, brand, that, that Belvedere is a brand that you would want to purchase? Has this impacted your purchase intent? Um, so of course we look at awareness, but we actually dig a little bit deeper into, is this enough to make you be a consumer of our brand and for you to, to, to sort of build um, that batch level of loyalty for us? Um, I think for IBM, I'll, I'll mention four. I'll mention four that, and internal and external. Um, our number one right now that we're very focused on is our net promoter score, is um, really going out into the market and really understanding, do customers r recommend or would they recommend our offerings? Um, we take it all the way down to the individual offering levels as well as up at the brand level. Um, so that's one of our number one, and it's actually driving a lot of interesting action inside the company. If a customer is giving us feedback and saying, you know, your product needs to improve in this, that, and the other, and we've had some examples of that, being able to take that back to our offering management team and saying, here's what customers are saying. They want this, this, and this to be improved. Having then an opportunity to go back out with a campaign, a customer marketing campaign, and saying, you spoke, 
we heard and here's the actions that we've taken is very powerful because I think one of the biggest things, especially big brands, is you know, you're not listening to me. I'm speaking, you're not listening to our needs. How do we then make sure that we get back, especially when they've given us feedback? So net promoter scores. We also, uh, G2 and G2 crowds, being able to go up, out and look at the comments that are being made, you know, how are our competitors rated to our products? Um, really looking at those social sites as well as those review sites. What are we saying? What are they saying about our, our offerings? Third, as a technology uh, company, we use our own tools. Uh, Watson Sentiment Analysis, Watson Tone Analyzer. Being able to go out there and look at this whole um, sea of unstructured data, which is 80% of the data that our customers um, social videos, um, and being able to analyze them, being able to look at the sentiment, being able to really look at the emotions, um, are they relating to the brand? Um, and then being able to take action around that. And then also brand health. We have an annual brand health, and actually we're going now quarterly to be able to understand, you know, what our customers, do they love our brand, and, you know, in what areas to improve. So I, I, I would say we do a lot of those similar activities, so I won't repeat all that. Um, we don't use Watson, but let's talk. We can talk um, after. <laughs> but, I, you know, I would say, you know, adding the overlay of reputation and um, sometimes overlooked, and in a way, you know, maybe the phrase brand love does a disservice to brands in the sense that um, the convergence, at least what I see is a convergence of brand and reputation, particularly among millennials who are, you know, we all know looking transparently under the hood to see how you act uh, as a company. And our category in financial services, you know, widely credited for, you know, destroying the, the, the world economy. You know, I mean, that's not a good place to start, right? So, um, you know, that, that's a category that's trying to climb back. You know, so it's, it's hard to talk about brand love in a, in a sector that's just trying to get back to brand, I'm okay with you, you know? Um, Prudential as a brand is, is uh, you know, we, we, we're ahead of that pack, right? We're, we're not really considered to be part of that problem, so we, we have that luxury. But, you know, for us, the, the purpose-driven nature of the brand, particularly because it's financial services and, it, and there is no, you're not going to get brand love on product. I mean, people are never going to love annuity, you know? Um, so, so we're increasingly we're looking at the whole picture and really looking at reputation and trying to, to do a better job of telling that purpose-driven story. We do some of what was already mentioned as an upstart. We don't have budgets to do it in the most robust ways, but I think one of the things that wasn't mentioned is engagement rate. So how much engagement are you actually generating? Because you can churn out a lot of different types of media through digital channels and otherwise. And I think it's really important with growth and with awareness to see how often people are engaging with you. Our primary platform for doing that is on Instagram, but we do that a lot of other places, including whether or not people open our emails, uh, respond to our surveys, and um, answer our MPS. Uh, so those are sort of the main ways that we look at brand love. I don't have too much to add to that, except for that it, that we do a lot of that same things. But it, it does still feel a little bit like an imperfect science. Like There's actually so much data out there now that it has put the onus on the people and a little bit on 
you know, instinct as a marketer and, and your folks who are really close to the consumers, um, which for us tends to be the kind of community manager folks who are in the social media platforms, um, helping to find some of those insights and some of the, that emotion through the text that it doesn't maybe with Watson, um, but the tools well, that we can talk. Yeah, <laughs> the, the tools that we have today, the, the technology sort of strip you of some of that, and it becomes about counting ones and zeros instead of you know being able to find that subtlety that's in the language sometimes. So when you're measuring for likability or brand love, um, does that change? sort of how you see the success of certain campaigns. Um, like if it really resonated with a few people and just made them die hard, um, consumers of your brand, like how do you weigh that versus kind of everyone being like, oh, I like them a little more now? I mean, it, it's... It depends on what the goal of the campaign was when you started, right? So if, it, if, if the campaign was about increasing advocacy and driving a deeper connection, then you know the, the, the first might have been successful, right? It's not about reach and scale. Or if you're really trying to build prospects or move up on a consideration, you know, move, move somebody's um, mindset about who you are and do that at scale, then you know, that, that might be a different tactical and a different KPI. So I think it goes back to, you know, your your basics in marketing, which is understanding what you're trying to achieve when you when you set out um, with an individual campaign. As a growing company, I think we're constantly focused on a goal of wide-reaching brand love as much as possible. And we have an extremely engaged core and and we're kind of at the point where whatever, interestingly enough, pretty much whatever we do, they're going to engage with. So for us, a, a KPI or a way that we look at success is getting a new audience to express brand, brand love in one of many ways. No takers? All right, we can move on. Well, I, mean, I, I mean, I think it's just repeating a little bit of, I mean, every, every campaign for... I mean, who is the target audience we're trying to reach? Mm -hmm. And then uh, being able to then go back and, and obviously what we're trying to drive, and, and a big focus for us is actually new, um, you know, new white space as we call it. Um, of and, and, I, and I, as we think about IBM, we've been very focused on the IT market for years. And now being able to have conversations with the line of business, with the actual users, practitioners, using our tools, um, much of those conversations, much of those profiles are new white space for us. Um, it's different in the way we have to engage. And this is why the brand um, that I mentioned earlier and kind of our move to you to the power was on the notion of really focus on those practitioners. We understand you, the marketer, and being able to have that conversation. And what engage, engages uh, that individual is very different than what engages IT. But when we look at a campaign, being able to look at the whole kind of end-to-end -end customer journey. You know, how many responses are we getting earlier in the campaign? What's driving the click-through and the conversions? And being able to measure that throughout the end-to-end, -end, and at the end, are we reaching a new customer? Are we getting a new opportunity, a new conversation? And, and then being able to measure what were the triggers? What were the assets that we built throughout the campaign? Was it a social? Was it a webinar? Was it a, an event? And, and so forth. Um, how do you use the customer feedback and sort of emotional response um, from some of these campaigns um, in additional marketing? Or how do you maybe forge an even deeper connection with those consumers that have expressed um, brand love or a lot of likability? 
Uh, I think the example um, that I mentioned earlier, I think one of the things that we're starting to do with the Net Promoter Score is it's given a tremendous insight of what customers love and don't love. And many of them, you know, a Net Promoter Score in the way, you know, you've got the strong supporters and then you've got the detractors. Um, being able to then act on those detractor comments, statements, the offering, um, you know, the like this, like not, being able to then go back with the customer marketing campaigns, like I said, you, we heard, you spoke, we listened, and being able to touch them and say, by the way, here's what we've improved, you told us. And by the way, here's the roadmap, you know, on the way forward, here's the new things that we're bringing in. By the way, here's an event near you. You know, we can show you how to use the tool and improve. So it gives us a great opportunity to go back with specific customer marketing campaigns to create advocacy and to create brand loyalty. I also can't say enough about the valuable tool that Net Promoter Score is. We This is a bit more business driver than brand love, but we have been able to attribute converting someone from a detractor um, and moving them up the scale to their lifetime value and understanding as you move people along their scale of the one to 10 rating, how much more valuable they're going to be to us. So converting detractors to someone that's neutral is actually extremely valuable to us. And so sometimes there's sort of more of that focus of how do you get the people who are the opposite of brand love to not dislike your brand as much or not be frustrated. And so I think that is um, a very actionable tool that we have and uh, a, fo a way to follow up with people who have personally expressed feedback that's quite specific. I think, um entertainment brands, we all went through this um, moment where we, we, it didn't matter what the critics said anymore, it was all about what consumers said. We, everyone ditched critic spots for a minute and all the spots used tweets from consumers. Um, and I think we had that moment as, as a simple way, a simple execution. I think what's, what's been really successful now and has been interesting but much harder to do is to think about how you take the digital into the real world. And so one of my, again, old example, uh, but one of my favorite examples at HBO is when we launched HBO Go, which is our TV everywhere product, uh, you couldn't buy it from us directly. And we had a few super fans who were pissed by that <laughs> um, because they didn't want the cable uh, subscription anymore, they just wanted HBO. And one uh, created a microsite and Twitter campaign called Take My Money HBO um, <laughs> and, and got a remarkable amount of press coverage and, and kind of engagement on social. And at the time, we weren't ready to go direct. When we did go direct with our HBO Now product, uh, I think about two years later, um, we went back to him. And we actually said that we wanted to do an interview with him, and then we sabotaged him and brought two of the guys from The Sopranos in to basically <laughs> shake him down. Uh, and created a video out of it, which had some, you know, had a little bit of virality to it, and we got some social impressions, and, um, and basically said, like, now we'll take your money. Um, so, but it was a fun way to take something that started online into the real world and create more content out of it um, to showcase that. And I think that, that, that's a really interesting space right now. I think just as a, as a general rule, if you think about the way consumer activation has changed, you know, it used to be you know, get a consumer to participate in some sort of individual action, acquire a product, or, but, but do something that's pretty much between you and them. And, and increasingly, the, you know, the best activations are 
to get consumers to do something with others, um, whatever that may be. And and you know, I think that's an interesting shift in just how we think about consumer engagement and feedback. I think adding on to that, that's something that we've built our brand on that I think is interesting for everyone, which is every single thing we put in the world is about creating conversation among our consumers. So rather it being a brand to consumer conversation, it's about how do you take brand love from a consumer and get them to speak to other consumers about either why they have that brand love or a product that they love or just telling a story. And for us also, and I think it's an interesting time, people are not as brand loyal anymore, right? They have so many options and so much information out there. And something that I think we all have to be more accepting of is that they may use multiple brands within your space. And how do you, everyone, you know, sort of there's this big term about being a lifestyle brand, but it's more about how do you, how do you, come to terms with the fact that people are going to use a lot of different brands potentially in your space. Like they might watch an HBO show and a Netflix show. And so how do you cater to sort of their assortment? And so for us also, the consumer to consumer conversation isn't only about your brand, but it's about how your brand fits into their life and their lifestyle. I would say um, from a Belvedere perspective, there was a learning that we got after a successful partnership that we just did um, with Noisy, which is Vice's music channel, um, that we are going to replicate going forward. So this is actually a pretty recent example. Um, we partnered with uh, Vice to tap into two insights that became very apparent to us about our target consumer, which is number one, music is king for them. Um, they love music, it's their number one passion point. And while a lot of our competitors play in the music space, there was a unique way for us to engage the consumer using music. And two, um, that our, our consumer specifically is very aspirational. There is an aspirational aspect uh, with millennials, with, uh, with, um, with kind of even the young millenni millennials and the older millennials, um, this idea of I can be anything I want to be. Um, and so utilizing that, we did a program where we identified three um, renowned artists, um, A-Track from an EDM perspective, Future from a hip-hop perspective, and Janae Aieko from a, an R&B perspective, three genres that also resonate with our consumer, um, and basically did a, an editorial video talking about their experiences, um, what has shaped you know, their careers and their success, and then also asking them, who do they think is next? You know, they've kind of made it, but who are the three artists that each of them would identify that they think will take up the next tentpole in their respective genres? And the beauty of this was that it leaned into that sort of aspirational lens. It celebrated the up-and-coming artist through the eyes of these successful musicians. Um, and the construct was we had three long-form videos with the established artist and uh, the up-and-coming artist. And then we had pre-roll that, that played before those, those long-form videos actually launched. Um, and in the past, what we would do for a pre-roll spot is just kind of jam in whatever you know brand created video we developed whether it fit with the content or not <laughs> but this time we changed it we decided to create a pre-roll spot that actually connected to the long form video that leaned more into the subject matter that the consumer was going to experience and the beauty of that is that in the brand lift study that was conducted after the culmination of that program we saw fantastic results that doing that that making sure that the branded content that we're creating actually connects with the subject um, 
that's what moves the needle. That's what allows us to make sure that we can get those favorable likability scores, um, the favorable purchase intent scores. This program, more than any other I think that we've done in a while, um, is the most that has made us feel that this is something that can allow us to improve sales. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, uh, as much as the experience is important, we still have to sell a little bit of Bellevue. Um, so <laughs> it was nice to know that we were able to give them content that they loved in, a, in genres that they were interested in and a construct that they could relate to. Oh, and by the way, it can help us sell some more Belvedere as well. So this is going to be a construct that we will replicate going forward. And, and I'm glad you brought it to sales because, of course, Marketing and sales are very connected and important. Um, and so when, you, when we're talking about this idea of brand love and different timelines for these campaigns, um, how do you communicate that to um, the importance of that for sales to other parts of your executive teams, for example, particularly when you're working businesses you know, operating on quarterly to quarterly basis, um, you might want to see maybe more awareness numbers or or so on. Um, how do you get people on board with um, the ideas you're expressing here and the importance of this likability and love factor? All right, I'll jump in. Um, so, you know, there's all the data points that we were all talking about in the previous question that um, finds its way into dashboards and all that kind of stuff. I, I, and that's important. Um, but I actually think in, in our case, um, it's more of what is felt in the organization. Um, when we do work that connects externally, it becomes um, very energizing internally in terms of employee engagement. And that is felt through management at, at various levels and across businesses, um, as well as in a selling environment, even in a B2B selling environment. So uh, for example, years, years ago, um, Prudential had a, a campaign uh, we called Day One Stories. That was a very authentic campaign that featured um, people on the very, very first day, literally as the sun rose, on the very first day of their retirement. And very authentic storytelling about what it's like to be in that sort of crossover moment into this exciting but anxious time. And, you know, it got a lot of attention. Uh, it was a little different, you know, for the category at the time. Um, and that introduced a narrative into, in particular, into our institutional retirement business that had been missing. Right, so in a selling setting, you know, people showing up at, and pitching alongside other wonderful retirement companies, and what is your reason for being? It changed the conversation to outcomes, and it changed it to, you know, refocused the table, both parties around why are we doing, why are we having this conversation, and it's about the outcomes and the quality of life that people are going to enjoy in their retirement. That's the kind of um, feedback. I don't want to call it anecdotal because it almost trivializes it, but um, it is something that is felt. In the, in the commercial system um, that oftentimes doesn't need to be presented in a book. You know, it's, it, it's just there. Well, I'm, I, I think also in, you know, and I'm, I'm talking a little bit more on the technology side, um, we've changed our complete model around campaigns where we used to do quarterly planning planning ahead now with the ability to, in the moment, in real time, be able to understand metrics like we've never before been able to understand. We go on a weekly planning. So there are iterations on our campaigns 
that you know we bring these campaigns to market, um, and every single day we're looking at metrics. What, where are conversions happening? What are customers saying? What words are working and what words are not? So, you know, this is the art of what is possible today and from what you're hearing and this whole evolution of AI, artificial intelligence, this whole evolution of Watson. As a marketer and being able to now leverage unstructured data, which is 80% of what the data that's out there that was not available to us as marketers or advertisers before, and being able to have technology and AI like Watson and say, you know, digest that information in real time, bring it back to a marketer and say, this is what's working. This is what's not working. Being able to analyze sentiment and tone in the moment, being able to personalize in real time. That's the opportunity that we have to be able to, because our customers are telling us what they think, what they feel um, every single day. And that's a lot of what's being shared in social, on Twitter, on Facebook. What if you could have access to that information and being able to bring it into your campaign in the moment and being able to alter it? And that's the opportunity that we're seeing in marketing and the way that we're working is being able to take that in and then bringing that to the creative side and being able to come with compelling brand you know, campaigns and message all grounded on data all grounded on information that customers are telling us. So that's it, you know, that's the exciting, um, and it's changed our world in marketing. You know, changed our metrics, changed the way that we measure ourselves. It's no longer a quarterly planning cycle. It's no longer, I will tell you in six months, three months, you know, the result of this campaign. Being able to, in the moment, and then at the same time, being able to change budgets in the moment, if one campaign's working or not, you know, where do you put the right dollar and what's my return on investment for every dollar I'm spending? How many responses, how many leads, how many conversions? And then that's created a whole different agile way of working in an organization. I lead the marketing, so I see it every day with my marketers. But that's a, you know, man and machine working together. And that's a very important message because when I do AI and Watson technology is not gonna take over. It is going to augment and allow us to do much more high value work and that's why our message has been around man and machine. And now the opportunity, specifically on the creative side, to have this access to this data and being able to act on it, knowing that you know, what you're putting out there is what customers are telling you. You just couldn't read it before. So how about a wearable Watson that you can use at live speaking events to gauge sentiment in the room to, to tailor your comments in real time? You know what, that's actually the Marquesa dress. I don't know if you saw that when we put the Watson technology. Not only was it used to build the, build the, the, the dress, taking from what was fashionable, but also the sentiments at the moment as it walked up. Were people tweeting, happy, don't like it, ugly, beautiful, don't like the color. And that was the color of the lights that came in. So it was actually in the moment. <laughs> um, and then... One more question for me until we take some from the crowd here. Um, but I was wondering, uh, with all these insights um, that you've leveraged around um, your customers and how much they love you and the emotional connections you're making, how has this all influenced your voice on social media? Um, and, and who runs that voice across the different channels? I can kick off. So we actually launched on Instagram. We started as an editorial platform and had already an engaged audience of, I think, a million and a half uniques a month. And so when we launched, we started our Instagram account even before we launched our products. 
And it has really been the driver of our voice and our brand voice. And I think that's a lot easier when you're a new brand and you can start and launch on that than adapting to a bunch of platforms. But for us, our take was always, we didn't, again, going back to what we were all talking about earlier and really the consumer to consumer being the most convincing form of marketing, we really didn't want to feel like we were a brand telling the consumer what to do. Beauty, especially as an industry, was you, historically, you walk into a department store, like even before any of the beauty retailers like Sephora or Ulta existed, you walk into a department store and you go to someone and they tell you exactly what you need and do. And you know, you have the 20 year old uh, who says they're 45 and have been using this cream and sell it to you. So we wanted to sort of be the antithesis to that. And a whole part of the voice, I think, there is approachability. And I think that's also, it depends on your brand, right? So for us, it's very much approachability. We want to be the friend that is goes with you to Sephora to go shopping and that you can relate to and speak to. And so a big driver of that for us is exactly being the friend, being approachable and having sort of that copy and that language resonate. And a lot of our brand copy and voice comes from our sort of soul that started in social media. So I think we probably have a slightly different approach, but uh, that is really how we started and have started creating conversation among our millennial customer base. This has been a, a, a little bit of a challenging one for us. Um, we have you know, a collection of brands in the shows. And that is a much cleaner and clearer voice um, and engagement. But but the master brand of HBO and, and what is what is the voice of HBO, you know, we're we're approaching our 45th anniversary, right? So we're it has been a, a, a question that we've been sort of um, picking at over the last year. And how does that voice need to evolve and what is what does that look like and how do we ensure that in a in this world of you know new consumers who are in opera and loyal of disaggregated content how do we get back and ensure that we are um, investing in the master brand of HBO and I think we let um, we may have outsourced too much of the the soul of that voice to agencies and we've just made an effort to say that you know in in the at the end of the day it is your internal teams, it's the people in the building, it's the people on the ground, so to say, in on those platforms that really are gonna know that voice best. And so if I have one piece of advice, at least from, from my experience, um, don't let an agency dictate your voice for your brand. That really needs to come from the people um, who are leading and you know loving that brand every single day, and that's usually internal. I'm going to echo that because that was exactly my, we learned a lot about the social. We learned a lot and we used to outsource it to agencies. And this is one thing that we've brought in house. I have a social media team that is on and, you know, so that, that was one big lesson for us, internal social. Second, if you're going to put out there in social, you've got to be listening and reacting in the moment. Um, when we worked with the agencies, they would come back and say, okay, here's what they were saying last week. No, 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 in the moment. And having our social media team being able to answer if there's a question, if there's a negative, if there's a positive, reinforcing that. And then have immediate access by having an internal to our offering team. If there is a question on one of our offerings on technology, being able to get somebody who's an expert to immediately, and having an internal, you can immediately pull from the team. So that's, I echo we learned it, and we've built it internally as well. Yeah, we also manage internally. Um, 
Hi, Keith. Hi, Meg. I'm sure they're listening. Um, and, um, but also, you know, it's a thought leadership uh, category. Um, so uh, over the last year and a half or so, I'd say we, we've activated um, around 100 different brand influencers within the company. Um, and there's different levels of facilitation that comes from the center uh, with that. Some folks are very agile on their own. Um, and others, you know, we, we help coordinate. Um, but it's always anchored in an authentic voice. We try to put a name to it. Uh, when the brand is out there, we, you know, we try to cut against the archetype of you know, financial services tends to be sort of um, brand archetype of sage and, and sort of paternalistic and uh, doesn't connect with people terribly well. So we, we, we try to bring it down to a, just a much more plain spoken, every man kind of, kind of an archetype. So um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I'm so sad. Uh, but let's first give a shout out to this wonderful moderator, these great panelists. Um, we have the room for a couple more minutes. So if you can hang around and you can come up and ask questions, that would be wonderful. Um, I want to thank you all for coming today. We've had a great advertising week. And uh, we hope to see you at future events. I also want to mention to you that we celebrate executive achievements through awards events. So our call for nomination for Working Mothers of the Year is out right now. So make sure that you're thinking of colleagues uh, who you want to recommend. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at a future event. So have a great day, everybody. You've been listening to Content Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show, or to become a sponsor, email us at contentshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Content Biz Show. That's Content B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, contentisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by 24-7 Talent. Connect with the best talent at 247talent.com. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.